Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Climate Tech. Uh, we are joined here with our esteemed panelists, Ryan Bethencourt, Sierra Peterson, and Ramez Nam. Um, I will give you a second to introduce yourselves, but first, um, just to say a word about myself. My name is Tommy Leap. I'll be the moderator. Um, I'm an investor in pre-seed climate tech companies through a fund called Jetstream. Ryan, would you please say a word about yourself? Yeah, I'm the uh, founder and CEO of Wild Earth. We're the leading plant-based and cell-based uh, pet food company in the U.S. Um, I've also been involved with investing in about 170 companies um, on two platforms here on AngelList. So the first is Sustainable Food Ventures, um, and the second is actually a Web3 fund called Layer One Ventures, which just recently launched. Thank you, Ryan. Sierra? Certainly. My name is Sierra Peterson. I am a co-founder at Voyager Ventures. We are an early stage fund focusing on investing in decarbonization in North America and Europe, everything precede through Series A, and we are a new fund that is 28 years in the making. Climate stabilization is my life's work, also the work of my co-founder, Sarah Skorsik, and we have been working on all things climate tech now for the better part of three decades, policymaking, investing since 2015, uh, advanced academic research, uh, and building between the two of us, five climate tech companies. So we're happy to talk all things climate tech and delighted to be here today. Thank you, Sierra. Ramez. Hey, I'm Ramez Nam. I've been a climate person since about 2010 when I wrote a book about how to innovate to solve climate, food, water, and energy. I've been investing in climate tech since 2014. I'm the managing partner and founder of a fund called Planetary.bc. Uh, invest in early stage, pre-seed to Series A, uh, like Sierra. Uh, I'm one of the people that helped, uh, was bold enough to forecast early on in 2010 to 2011 that we'd see exponential cost declines in technologies like solar and batteries, and it will continue to in a number of other technologies in the clean tech area. Thank you, Mez. Your, your data um, from that period is legendary and well-known, I think, among many climate investors, so we appreciate your work. All right, let's get right into a discussion. So climate tech has had many ups and downs uh, in the 21st century. In the mid uh, 2000s, VC poured more than 25 billion into the climate sector and lost more than half of it. That sparked a prolonged slump uh, in the climate tech investing sector. But today we're seeing renewed enthusiasm, which is why we're all here um, in our climate tech space. So what's different today as opposed to 10 years ago that makes climate tech a good bet? I'm happy to take this one. We all have thoughts here, so. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is the biggest economic opportunity we've seen, uh, you know, the possible decarbonization of the global economy. Uh, it is not limited to energy as climate, clean tech 1.0 really focused on. This is foundational decarbonization across food production, across mobility, across the built environment, across all segments of the global economy, where we're seeing now decades of R&D pay off uh, in creating products that are simply better performing and lower cost than the fossil fueled incumbents of yesterday. So it's financially driven. The technology is better, it's cheaper. And so it's appealing to a wide swath of buyers uh, who are simply motivated by better performance and better price uh, than an incumbent technology that's unsustainable. Uh, that's one. And then two, obviously the commitments to net zero operations from massive segments of the market, <laughs> corporates, governments, people uh, around the world, that's creating the market demand. It's really speeding the trajectory of deployment. 
The third thing, obviously, is the founders. The founders showed up in a major way about two years ago, uh, folks recognizing that this is the moment to build in climate tech. And that's when Sarah and I, the co-founder at Voyager, decided to launch the fund. We'd been investing our own money for years beforehand, but we realized the th those three elements, the technology being better, lower cost, the market demanding it, and then the founders showing up to build that next set of billion-dollar companies and this multi-trillion dollar opportunity, that was the moment to launch an institutional fund. So that's what's different. I think Sarah just nailed it. Uh, let me just add a couple of visuals to back up the, exactly what she just said, which was dead on. You look at Climate Tech 1.0, you go back to 20, 2004. This is data from Bloomberg Energy Finance. We spent $32 billion a year deploying clean energy. This year, 2022, we'll spend around a trillion dollars deploying clean energy. And that is a, it's a doubling every four years. And that's really just solar, wind, electric vehicles, and batteries. There's still a huge number of sectors to go. But as Sierra said, these technologies have just plunged in cost. So now mm -hmm. clean energy is the cheapest energy, cheaper than fossil energy. Electric mobility is going to be cheaper than fossil mobility this decade. And to the, the very important point that Sierra made, it's not just electricity and cars we have to decarbonize. Though electricity and cars are less than you know, 40% of the problem, actually more like 35%. We have to do ag, land use, deforestation, cattle. We've got to do heavy industry, steel cement, the stuff that goes into the clothes that you wear, uh, how we heat our homes, uh, eventually how we do transportation. There's a huge range of things here and it touches food and water in other ways, recycling. So it's it's really uh, an enormous, enormous set of challenges that we've seen people want to solve. Governments want to solve and consumers want to solve. And so businesses want to solve for those reasons. Maybe I'll, I'll jump in with a, a, a perspective. You know, my, my area is really, I love everything, the, the whole area around climate tech um, and really seeing this area rise as a technology cat category. It's been something I've been very, very excited about, but my, my unique angle here is really food and consumer. And I think what we're seeing is we're seeing consumers wanting better products. And so what we're doing is we're using new technologies. We're also using new manufacturing technologies. So whether that's plant-based, uh, products, recombinant or fermented uh, products, or or even um, what's called cell-based or lab-grown meats. Um, that's something that's been rising. We've seen the first approval that's actually happened of cell-based meats. Um, it was a little over a year ago uh, in Singapore, and we're starting to see more and more approvals. And it looks likely that possibly next year we, we'll start to see approvals in the U.S. too. And so I think our entire food system um, is being moved into the future, right? It's inevitable that we will eat um, better, cleaner food manufactured in unique ways um, that, are, of course, less heavy on the environment. Uh, it's it's uh, inevitable that we're going to be using uh, electric cars, that we're going to be using clean energy. All of these things to me, uh, as someone who is, you know, I describe myself as a technology maxi, um, it is inevitable. It's something that I want to embrace and I, I do with my life as well. And I know that many, many other consumers, including, you know, we have over 60,000 customers at Wild Earth uh, and growing. Um, many of our, our consumers at Wild Earth are, have a similar perspective, right? They are not anti-technology. They're actually pro-technology, but pro, uh, pro, pro more sustainable technology in everything and how we live all the way through to how we eat and the, the products that we use. Thank you, Ryan. So given how much funding is going into climate tech, uh, 
um, how many new technologies are developing from now onwards, the founders that have shown up. Where are we? What's the state of the world? Are we close to the technologies that we need um, to kind of stave off the worst effects of climate change, or do we still have a long way to go? When I started in the space in about 2010, forecasts were that we would be looking at somewhere between four, five, or six degrees Celsius of warming by 2100. And that's that's when you get really truly apocalyptic uh, climate changes happening. Now, we have not solved climate change, but now forecasts based just on the economics of climate tech bring us down to somewhere in the two to three degrees Celsius range. Uh, if you look at uh, the variety of papers, I'm saying 2.5, the IEA's uh, slightly aggressive, their middle scenario brings in at 1.9 with error bars. We'd love to get that down to 1.5. We'd love to reduce uncertainty, but we've bent the curve from really, really civilization threatening to bad, but we can survive it. And I need to bend it further and further down three-tenths of a degree we can bring it down matters. And half of that is tech that's already at commercial scale, mm -hmm. and half of it is tech that's uh, pre-commercial scale. So there's room for both work and for things like government R&D. Completely agree. We, you know, the, the worst uh, seems now further off than it once did, which is, I, I think, heartening to those folks who are building in this space. Uh, we and what we're seeing too is that there's a shift, and you're recognizing the the peril that we have created for ourselves. We are losing hundreds of species every single year to extinction. That is unconscionable, um, and yet. While the climate system is destabilizing at an accelerating rate, climate technologies are becoming better and better cost uh, and more accessible and more likely to be deployed on a timeline that is ecologically meaningful, that sort of sub 10 year timeline. So we have so much available now. The cost declines of the past 10 years is, as pointed out, in, in solar, wind, energy storage, uh, the inflection points that we've seen in transportation. The dominant paradigm is now electrification. We're not going back to an internal fuel, uh, internal combustion fueled paradigm for light duty transportation. It's just, you know, the technology is ever accelerating uh, around electrification there. So big forces are at play that, you know, continue to give us a sense of optimism and also focused deployment and investment in the technologies that are poised for that massive commercial scale in a sub 10 year window that is one aligned with venture scale return profile and with ecological benefit given the tipping points that we're seeing uh, around the world. And I, I just wanted to add from a consumer perspective. So I think a lot about, about the consumer, right? And, and how do we make better products across the board? They can't just be more sustainable. And this is one of the really interesting insights. It has to be everything. It has to be a better product. If it's food, it has to be better for the planet, better for you and tastier. Um, if it's for our, you know, for, for our pets um, with wild earth, you know, the, the, the plant-based side of the equation, you know, dogs uh, on plant-based diets actually live a year and a half longer. This is a new peer reviewed published study that came out this year, a year and a half longer of lifespan. Right. So these these are the kind of th things that we really focus on, which is we're making better products across the board. Not only um, is it better for your pet, it's better for the planet, but we recycle it's recyclable and we add new technology as we go through. And so I think with all of these technologies, if we think about self-driving cars, why, why do you buy a Tesla? Well, yeah, it's, it's a great car. It's sustainable. It looks great. 
but by the way, it's also semi-autonomous and it has all of these others. So I think that for those of us that are that are building these companies, we have to think about not just the environmental impact, but then how do we make it better for the consumer as well? And that's really the unlock point. And many of these technologies are there. They're, like we, we are at that inflection point for many of these technologies. Great, thank you. So, you know, in addition to the technological development, we're getting um, some assistance, maybe I'd say from the government, both from the regulatory perspective and then um, funding, such as the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, is it po what role does government play? Is it possible to regulate our way out of the climate disaster, or um, do we need government subsidies to encourage these te uh, the technological development, or is it just incumbent on the private sector to invent solutions and figure things out? They might say on on our own. Yeah. So uh, as a former policymaker, I have some thoughts here. <laughs> Great. <laughs> also, the technology investor also have thoughts. Technology itself is what shifts the, you know, the chemistry and the physics of the climate system. Policy does not. So unless we actually have deployment of real infrastructure, real physical products, we're not going to change the system as it stands. Um, I, you know, the way that we see the deployment of that speeding up uh, is through the market mechanisms that really do determine the trajectories of deployment of, you know, the in accelerants as the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, for those of those who were not watching the airwaves in uh, this past summertime, the United States uh, put at least $370 billion uh, of incentives for deployment of promising decarbonization technologies across the economic system, mobility, the built environment, energy, uh, you know, almost food production. It's, it is massive. It is cross economic. Um, and it was frankly, somewhat unexpected uh, for, you know, for those of us who've been uh, recognizing the potential power uh, of that sort of intervention from a market design. Um, the fact of shifting the economics for a rational choice now at point of you know, buying decision being the decarbonized technology, that is particularly effective. Uh, you know, we see this having ripple effects across the economy in a way that we've never seen before. So, uh, you know, we don't see uh, in the United States, at least speaking for myself, um, we don't see the, uh, you know, universal carbon tax coming into four. We see instead the United States favoring um, technology specific um, financial incentives for, you know, everything from electric vehicles to heat pumps, sustainable aviation fuel. Um, and it's, you know, both can be very effective. So uh, universal price signal, carbon tax would be great, uh, be super helpful for incorporating the overall, the actual you know, physical risk that is happening around us every day, whether or not we price it um, into buying decisions. Uh, and at the other end of the spectrum, in terms of you know, ground truth, incentivizing the uh, <laughs> simply you know, decarbonized technology so that it is truly rationally economic to acquire that technology that is decarbonized also can work at massive scale. I think Sarah totally nailed it. And I, I agree with everything you said. Just give you a sense of the, the size of this. This is the US federal incentives for clean energy over different uh, periods of time. And in the 90s, we spent a few billion dollars a year. And now, literally, it's uh, at least $80 billion a year. In fact, it's probably more than that because these incentives are not actually capped. They are a per unit cost incentive. And what we've seen historically is that there's a huge flywheel, is all of these technologies get cheaper by scaling. So when government, uh, as started in Europe with renewables in the 90s and 2000s, when governments start 
creating incentives or policies that have mandates to scale these clean technologies, the technologies get cheaper. And then when the technologies get cheaper, they tap into new markets, they get uh, more jobs in that work, in that area, more people see them, and that actually emboldens bolder policy. So I think things like the Inflation Reduction Act are a, a massive uh, incentive. They're gonna do great things for solar and wind, which will then create needs for other technologies. They're gonna do great things for EVs, will create needs for other technologies, all those problems. They also massively scale nascent technologies like green hydrogen production, making hydrogen uh, so we can decarbonize things like steel making or have uh, weeks of energy storage. That is a baby industry that's very expensive today. It will get cheaper because of this. I had one more thought on policy. I think the other policy unintentionally that's driving a lot of decarbonization is the war in Ukraine. When Putin invaded Ukraine, he made getting off of natural gas, which Europe depends upon to keep the lights on and keep houses warm and to make fertilizer and other things. He made that no longer just an issue of decarbonization for Europe. He made that an issue for energy security for Europe. And so in the very short term, you got coal plants running harder in Europe. They're importing liquefied natural gas from various places. But if you look down over the decade to come, Europe is going to move faster and faster and faster away from uh, fossil methane. Uh, and that's going to mean more solar wind, more grid energy storage, uh, ways to do fertilizer. They don't require imported Russian natural gas and so on. So there's a, a number of policy prongs, uh, others in Asia as well, uh, that are all accelerating these technologies getting cheaper to when they can just win in the marketplace. And, and I, would, I, would, I would also focus on how this is really, um, you know, a global story, right? And I think that, you know, it, it's, if we're thinking over the next 10 years, um, some governments are actually great and they're really embracing decarbonization technologies. Others, um, you know, the governments are actually relatively weak. So I'll, I'll give one example. We backed a company called uh, Veggie Victory. It was the first plant-based meat company in Nigeria, based in Lagos, uh, through Sustainable Food Ventures. And uh, when I was talking to the founder, Hakeem, I was like, Hakeem, you know, what would make things better for you, right? As a founder, as building a company, he's like, honestly, Ryan, consistent electricity. He's like, we have we have about eight hours of electricity a day that I can count on, and then the rest is, you know, good luck, right? So we have to think about backup generators. We have to think. So you know, part of this story, I think, for those of us in the U.S. and and, and Western Europe, it you know, is like, okay, well, we have consistent electricity, but all this clean energy actually unlocks um, things that we take for granted. Um, in, you know, in, in, in many, you know, in many of, you know, the developed countries, right? And so this is a global story over the next 10 years, you know, Nigeria alone will go from, uh, you know, 200 million people to 400 million people. So this is a global story. And it's really how we can make better technologies. And all this will accelerate technology together. Right. So the fact that he's going to have access in his factories to reliable 24 hours of electricity through solar, through wind, through various other uh, applications, that's going to make a huge difference. And so I guess mine is the counter when, when you don't have strong governments and you can't rely on strong governments. Actually, the private markets can really deliver on that end. And, and I think investing in those private markets, we've seen that they can really help with leapfrogging existing limitations, too. Let's talk a little bit more about startups. I like these concrete examples um, to help kind of illustrate the point of what's happening. Um, are there any other startups that come to mind that stand to gain from the government funding initiatives or just from how startups today are different from maybe 10 years ago? 
um, just given the developments that have happened? Or what are some of your favorite technologies that are that are coming to roost over the next several years? Mez, I see you smiling. Would you want to contribute? Well, one of my sort of announced a Series B today, and there I helped. So uh, right? the hypothesis a few years ago that we would see EVs get cheap enough that they would go from being only sold to people that live in detached homes to uh, condo owners and apartment dwellers having EVs. There's a little company called Zeal uh, mm -hmm. uh, that does software for smart control, makes having chargers for apartments and condos much, much cheaper. And they had a massive uh, Series B announcement today. So I think that that topic of uh, EV charging, how do we do it? How do we, what do we do when EVs get out to more people? Because the new incentives in the IRA uh, actually cap income and cap price of the EV to get the full uh, uh, benefit of the tax incentive. So they're going to like push more EVs into the, the mid-market and, and lower market. Another one that I've seen a lot of is every high, green hydrogen startup I know uh, is raising, uh, is able to re-raise if they want to. Grid energy storage startups are able to raise more because now there's an incentive specifically for storage. Before you had to be like attached to a solar farm with the solar farm's incentive. Uh, so there's just a, a huge raft of these. And in hydrogen, I'd also say everybody is, there's a lot of investment in hydrogen production. Uh, no one has solved the problem really of storing and moving hydrogen around. So it's an area that I think is nascent that will get sort of an indirect tailwind from all of this. So at Voyager, we invest in companies that are selling products that are simply better and lower cost. Uh, for you know, we don't look at anything that has a green premium. We think those are niche markets at very best and, and not relevant to the massive potential commercial scale that drives climate outcome and the timeline that matters. And, and we see, to your question regarding government support, uh, the the price declines in the foundational technology of energy storage, of energy renewable energy generation, it enables now mass retail scale uh, for, to, as Mez points out, electric vehicles being simply the better choice for everybody. You know, the cost of owning an electric vehicle is lower now than that of an internal combustion engine. Uh, when we think about the pricing uh, power and the purchasing power of what the Inflation Reduction Act represents, so I worked in the White House in the first Obama administration. We thought the $90 billion to the first Recovery Act was a big deal. It was at that point. Fast forward, though, now more than a decade and $370 billion applied across technologies that have gotten 90% cheaper. It's not a linear you know, possibilities that it is exponentially bigger in terms of the amount of clean decarbonized stuff you can put out into the world and what that means for really reshaping the overall energy intensity of the foundation of the American economy. Like it is exciting. <laughs> this is a big day. This enables people to simply buy the decarbonized choice on economically rational grounds, not because people feel like, oh, I should do this. To Ryan's point, like if it doesn't taste better, it doesn't go faster, it's not a better choice, like few people are going to buy it. So we don't look for companies that are, you know, requiring subsidy to make the unit economics work. We look for companies that are simply poised to really appeal at a mass retail scale. And that's what we have in the United States now. I think that's really smart. And the way that I look at it is the subsidies the biggest impact a subsidy has is not lasting forever. It's helping those technologies get out to larger scales. So they get down that cost curve. And, and actually, Ram, is just to link in with subsidies, 
you know, on the food side, which I know that many of us are, are very interested in, um, actually subsidies act in counter to that. So they keep sunset industries still alive, right? And so, you know, one of my favorite examples and, and probably one of the areas that I'm most interested in is, um, is animal, is basically animal ag, right? And so because of the subsidization, particularly in the US and also in the EU of animal ag, it means that these very, very thin margins allow animal ag to kind of continue. Um, and, and one of the themes that I'm very excited about, and we're talking about the next 10 years. So by 2035, there was an incredible report called Disrupting the Cow. It basically said that all animal ag will be gone, right? It'll be literally gone, bankrupt. Animal ag will be bankrupt by 2035, right? It, it sounds uh, almost hard to believe, but when you start looking at the margins of these companies, and particularly when you look at things like uh, the milk industry, you can actually see that the milk industry is barely profitable. And in fact, you know, the largest milk producers in the US have already gone bankrupt, right? And so you, you, you actually start to see the economics of these companies hardly make sense with subsidization. Without it, they make no sense. And so that allows new technologies to step in in their, in their place. And so that's going to unleash a huge amount of technologies. Um, you know, my, my favorite, my favorite uh, reflection is biology is technology, and we are starting to really harness it. You know, I really love this reflection, and um, I'd like to talk about food a little bit more. Um, the, the idea that kind of new technologies will have just better um, economies of scale and then will, um, you know, make older technologies like um, traditional farming and ranching obsolete. It's, it's a really kind of interesting perspective. Um, I was thinking that, you know, farming and ranching might be falling out of favor because of emissions. And that's, you know, one aspect to it and maybe water use and land use. But um, you're basically saying that it's, it's the unit economics of these newer technologies. They're just so much better that allow them to scale faster. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's inefficient, right? So when you start to think from a first principles perspective, biology is exponential, right? So what that basically means is, you know, if you have a doubling time of 24 to 48 hours of a muscle cell and you're able to, to grow, you know, a lab grown, you know, uh, slab of, of muscle, you know, whether it's some beef or some chicken, you know, from a first principles perspective, you know, you can basically, you, you start with a hundred pounds within 24 to 48 hours, you have 200 pounds and you can kind of play with those exponentials and realize like actually at scale, once we start to harness these technologies, it's not just for food, but it's for all types of biomanufacturing. Um, it is transformational what we can do and how we can usher in humanity into a new age of essentially abundance. Uh, and it's not just biology, right? It's it's software, it's robotics, it's, you know, cleaner energy, like it's all, they're gonna unlock the production of these things. And so, so it's basically, um, you know, what we've seen in, in some areas of, um, of biology and biomanufacturing is that in, in many cases, they beat Moore's law in terms of uh, improvements in cost, right? Reductions in cost. Um, you know, with Wild Earth, one of the strategies that we found is we're starting first with cell-based meat, so cell-based chicken, so slaughter-free chicken, real chicken, but brewed in a lab. Um, we start with flavorings. That is a cost-effective uh, price point already um, to unlock uh, the use of, uh, of cell-based technologies like that. And so we're going to see lots and lots of applications like that across the board. And I think the real game changer, I think plant-based is great. I love eating a plant-based burger, you know, it's fun. Um, I actually like the taste, but um, I realize that for the vast majority of people, they want real meat, they want real chicken, they want real beef, and we can do that now with with biology and 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 the state of biotechnology today. So, so tell me, you told us to 
to state who we disagree, to be controversial, to make yeah. it a better value. Yeah. I, I want Ryan to be right. I've known Ryan for years and, and I and I love the stuff that he does. And I and I used to be more bullish on that. I'm a little bit more skeptical. Um, and so I actually that would be the best thing for the world, like from an emissions standpoint, the biggest impact of agriculture is actually the amount of land we use and how we deforest. And that, that's what causes species loss. Primarily up till now, it's been agriculture and fishing has what's destroyed species, not yet climate change, right? So if we could yeah. shrink the footprint to bioreactors, amazing. Um, I, alas, I'm less optimistic about the economics coming down. So I have a counter bet, which is I actually look for things that make on-field outdoor ag work uh, much better uh, with higher yields and lower carbon footprint. We know that high developing countries like the US and Europe use four times as much food per acre as a low development country like Bangladesh and twice what the world does. And so there's opportunities to, to look for ways to improve that. They're hard. Agtech is really hard, I gotta say. And, and actually the exits are sexier and faster in alternative proteins. Uh, so that's what Ryan's talking about, to be completely honest. But from a global impact standpoint, I think in 2050, the vast majority of calories will still come from outdoor farms. And 25% of emissions come from farming, most of that being cattle and uh, deforestation caused by grazing cattle or growing crops for cattle, or the inputs are to put on the ground to raise the crops that go into, into animals. So I'm really excited about nitricity, for example. Uh, fertilizer is six to 8% of global carbon emissions and nitricity uh, uses uh, plasma, uses electricity to make uh, uh, lightning that makes uh, fertilizer from the air with zero carbon emissions and zero decomposition. So things like that are where I feel that there's greater impact, uh, but, but Ag tech is also a hard place to venture, so I'm much more selective. In we, I don't think we disagree in this in the sense because I agree with you. I think you know in field applications, things like ni nitrogen fixation is very underappreciated. Whether you do it, you know, which I've, that was actually the first I've heard using basically plasma to get nitrogen from the air. I think it's brilliant. Um, but you can also use biology too, right? So you can engineer microbes in the soil. You can actually genetically modify the crops themselves to actually get collect their own nitrogen. So there's lots of um, there's lots of ways to do it. And I agree that we have to have, sometimes it's seen as a low tech solution, but actually biology is exquisitely complex. It's, I think that's awesome. And I, and I think also that we have this interesting world where uh, CRISPR has allowed us and gene editing in general has allowed us to create crops, but we selectively edit their genome, but they're not called GMOs. A GMO yep. in the US and probably in the UK is only moved a gene from one species to another. It's a transgenic. If you just go into your like genome editor and tweak a few things, flip a few bits, as they were four bits, I guess, uh, that does not count as a GMO in the mm -hmm. US and probably won't in uh, the UK, in the rest of the world. And it's a technology that allows us to edit faster and, and uh, cheaper, do more experimentation. So I do think that there's a lot of that sort of the Moore's law of biotech that Ryan was talking about, or better than Moore's law yeah. of biotech, can be applied to help on-field stuff, maybe that'll produce crops that grow better in vertical farms as well, or that are feedstocks that we use to make these alternative proteins. We'll see. Yeah, it's a new green revolution, right? We, we always need new green revolutions to feed more people. And that that's inevitable, whether it's, you know, farm applications, um, you know, some some of the, you know, um, 
vertical farms or whether that's alternative proteins, things like brewing cell-based meat, which, you know, there, there are still some technical challenges to scaling that, but it is approved, right? In Singapore, these, these technologies are already approved. People are eating cell-based chicken. Um, I would love, you know, to request the FDA and the USDA kind of get together and move and start approving these technologies. Uh, I'm hopeful for next year. I'm hopeful, but, uh, you know, Regulatory clarity. And sometimes regulations, I mean, sometimes subsidies, subsidies are bad also, but regulatory clarity in addition to, you know, incentives like that matters so much. Uh, yeah, I mean, yes and no. I think the regulatory clarity in the EU has been actually retarding the overall biotech. Uh, and we were all nodding here, but like it's it's just so frustrating to see this prohibition on GMOs. It means that, you know, Singapore, United States, much more promising markets to get a, a biotechnology in biomaterials and food business off the ground. And it's, you know, Europe is really lagging behind here. It's clear, but it is behind. I will say too, I mean, we were instructed to keep things spicy, but I agree with both of you and our portfolio uh, really illustrates that, that, you know, we focus on the overall, the first principles approach to thinking through, you know, what is the promise of biomanufacturing and how can that enable better unit economics in the production of both materials and food, um, both outdoors uh, and in bioreactors. We've made, you know, two investments from Voyager, one in, in alternative protein production company, uh, and one uh, in biotech for replacing traditional synthetic nitrogen fertilizers uh, you know, to both boost yield and permanently remove carbon in the course of doing so. And it comes back to, again, what's going to have a shorter supply chain? What's going to have a higher yield on overall inputs of energy, calories, food, whatever it might, you know, the overall cost? These are simply more efficient production methods that yield uniformity uh, in whatever the market is prizing, be it uniform leather, uniform beef, or in this case, a more reliable nitrogen fixation uh, without having to cart around tons of synthetic fertilizer. So it's whatever is going to be lower cost, shorter supply chains, and more robust unit economics overall. And by the way, just to loop that back, what Sierra is saying, like, the war in Ukraine made natural gas more expensive. What do we make right. from natural gas? So you can have some way to fix nitrogen without that, amazing, even without uh, a subsidy. Like it's just a, a farmers want something to lower their costs. Yep. Mez, it's a great uh, segue into the next industry. Let's talk about energy for a little bit. There's been a promise of abundant energy right around the corner, um, you know, from uh, fission, fusion, uh, maybe geothermal, even space-based solar. So where are we today? What can we expect in the next 10 years? Will we deploy more nuclear? Will fusion become viable? Um, yeah. And how should we think about investing in energy? So I'd say this, the things that we know are getting cheaper and scaling are solar, wind, batteries, uh, offshore wind included in that. Those are the things that have these learning rates like this. Those technologies have hit the, begin, the low level of the S-curve where it starts to, to go up, solar and wind together are like 11% of global electricity, which is really not that much. And I say the, one, the first 1% was the hardest, actually. Uh, now they've hit the point where uh, in the US, cost, even without the IRA, is not a blocker for building solar or wind. It's actually NIMBY, permitting, and transmission. If you can clear those, those roadblocks, these things are now going to go up and up and up. But they're going to hit the slowdown at the top of the S-curve when we deal with uh, seasonal uh, variability, not just like 
hour to hour. I don't like going through the day night cycle. But the fact that in Europe, for instance, Northern Europe gets one seventh the sunlight in December that it does in June or July, right? That's well, that's the UK. And so if that's happening, uh, you need to be able to shift, either you need to, be able to shift uh, weeks worth, months worth of power around via storage, which we don't have a technology for today. Maybe that's hydrogen, or you need a clean, firm energy source like uh, the next generation geothermal companies. Instead of requiring a hot spot where magma is close to the crust, can put geothermal almost anywhere. Uh, companies like Fervo or Ever, I'm not investors in them, but they're they're both going into things like that. Or making fission cheap. Uh, we'll see. Uh, it's it's not going well so far, but I think we should keep trying. We need more tools in the toolkit than uh, we want. Like we should assume that some will fail. So let's invest in a whole bunch of things. Uh, fusion, I think fusion net energy gain will happen this decade. I'm fairly convinced of that now, or I think it's high probability. Will fusion be cheap? I don't know. That fusion plants also uh, have very low fuel costs. Fusion might have a zero fuel cost with the capex of that plant. Uh, and crazier thing, I think floating offshore wind is highly, un it's the most underrated power source in the world. It can go to deeper water or further from shore where the winds flow faster and steadier. Uh, and you don't have to run transmission as, as long. But even crazy things like uh, space-based solar beaming down to Earth, uh, that did not pencil out. That made no sense five years ago, three years ago, until we started talking about Starship and SpaceX bringing down launch costs by multiple orders of magnitude. And now in Excel, I can make it pencil out. Can somebody actually build it? I don't know yet, uh, but crazy, crazy things start to look actually possible. I think it's going to be a competition among commodity electrons. It's not like electrons are green or brown or whatever color you might want to think of them. This is what is going to be the cheapest, most reliable source of electricity on the grid. And to Mez's point, solar, wind plus storage, like that is shooting down the cost curve. It is the cheapest source of electricity in many parts of the world now. In some cases, it's cheaper to run, you know, to build a new solar facility than to run an existing coal plant. I think people don't recognize it is so much cheaper and it is getting cheaper by the day. Uh, that's exciting. And so you know, when you project out 10 years, is that cost going to be able to beat whatever else we might see in the form of geothermal, in the form of nuclear? Um, the capex, I think, for nuclear should not be underestimated, and the difficulty of actually getting distributed nuclear uh, you know, facilities uh, set up around geographies right now. Like we're having trouble permitting solar <laughs> in, you know, in California. Like it's the regulatory construct can be really sticky, even for various promising technologies. So ten years out remains to be seen what that source of cheap, reliable. Um, electrons are going to be. It is an ultimate commodity, though. I, I think, Sarah, is totally going to be clearly, to, to add on to that, it's that that bending of the hockey stick at the top. Let's say it's a third. Somewhere between 10, 20, 30 percent of the power we need to add where it's about reliability rather than cost. So right now, there's going to ratchet up from 11 percent electricity. It's going to go faster and faster than you think. But we still have to solve that reliability issue uh, for that seasonal thing. Mm -hmm. and and by the way, I just wanted to say for all the sci-fi nerds, I, I'm not involved in energy, but I, I love that Mez basically said by this decade, we're going to get, you know, fusion, you know, some form of fusion, whether it's scalable or not, like that is super exciting, right? So I, I just wanted to, to kind of mention that, that, you know, that's got me thinking, okay, 
where could we use Fusion? Like that is very, very exciting tech. Definitely the most exciting time for Fusion ever. Let's talk about other materials that we make. So cement, concrete, and steel, they require a lot of energy and they produce a lot of emissions. Um, are these heavy kind of uh, industry technologies, areas that you invest in? Um, or do you focus more on tools to kind of enable um, the built environment, say, uh, such as software that helps with construction or energy optimization in buildings? Here, you mentioned a company in that space, um, or both. And what are the risks? What should private investors think about in uh, in the built environment and materials? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yes to all three. We invest in deep tech, software, and biotech. He's <laughs> heard exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. There is massive opportunity in all segments uh, of decarbonization of the global economy. It's like, it, it, you know, I think we'd be remiss to ignore the massive opportunity in deep tech and, in, you know, decarbonizing uh, these huge industries like steel and cement. One of the things that's interesting there is that, you know, these, these are industries of massive size. And so if you can create a technology that is simply lower cost and as reliable or better than the current paradigm, you're going to have a big market waiting. We've not made any investments in any cement companies. So you know, I don't have a sort of particular um pony in this race uh, as of yet, but we see the opportunity that there is a huge market uh, available to companies that can out-innovate these you know, frequently antique paradigms of production, where it's you know, like the state of the art is like a hundred years old. <laughs> like that is very low hanging fruit. I'm with you, Sarah. I, I draw a slight distinction between buildings, the built environment in terms of managing the energy that we use mostly to heat and cool those buildings. I think mean, that's that's an area where it's mature. It's often an energy and cost savings to the building. To Sierra's point about not having a green premium, just doing something that's better, cheaper, faster. Sometimes that's software. Sometimes it's actually a fintech or a finance sort of play of how do you actually uh, make that not a one x one time giant capital outlay. And there's been a number of great, interesting startups in that space. There've been a few investments there. I think things like steel and cement are in a different stage. So making those, I mean, steel is 8% of global carbon emissions, making it. That's three times the size of aviation. Cement is maybe 6%. Those are still sort of in the earlier phase of their learning curve where they're, they're not yet price competitive, but so we need demand pull to pull them down so they get cheaper and cheaper in those technologies uh, to make steel without using coal, to make coal, to make a concrete that's carbon negative. Uh, and we're seeing that happen both from policy, which is happening in Europe uh, and a little bit in the US. So hydrogen is one of the technologies that can do this. And the hydrogen industry gets scaled a lot and gets driven on its cost curve a lot, making it more potentially feasible to use green hydrogen to make steel, for instance, instead of coal. Uh, but also just from consumers and businesses, uh, you have BMW and other auto OEMs trying to source green steel that was made with no carbon emissions for their high-end vehicles because the customer wants it, actually. Like, I try to avoid things where there's a sort of green premium, but at some point you see that customers want the product they buy to, to be green, especially if it's already a premium product, has a premium brand around it. And that in turn is creating this B2B demand for green industrial products like steel, other metals, cement, and so on. I think that's an exciting place to be, and that'll help us get those technologies down to where they're cost competitive.
So when we talk about climate change, um, it often goes hand in hand with reducing greenhouse gas emissions, which we call mitigation. There's also the idea of how we react and address extreme weather events like forest fires, heat waves, floods. So that's the adaptation section. How will mitigation and adaptation evolve in the next 10 years? Should we pay more attention to one or the other? The climate change is going to get worse before it gets better. Like I'm an optimist. We've warmed about 1.3 degrees Celsius. I think we have a real shot at staying below two. There's a roll of the dice involved, but staying below two means that 10 years from now, climate impacts are going to be more obvious. That's going to increase deployment of capital both into mitigation, deploying new clean energy. We're going to be like, well, we got to do something. But it's an even easier sell in many ways to do adaptation because people just adapt on their own. Whether or not they, they believe in climate change, if the sea's rising, you move or you build a seawall, right? If the crops uh, don't grow because salt water is, is creeping into the water table, you figure out a way to grow something there that you can. So a lot of adaptation funding will happen without people even necessarily realizing that it's climate or acknowledging that. Uh, I, the area of adaptation, so I think that that's a totally legit area. It's fair game for investment. I'm excited about it. Uh, if we can make that lower cost for people, make it work better, get ahead of the game. The area of adaptation I'm most worried about not being easily metrifundable is the parts of nature that we don't, that are in the commons, uh, that we might derive value from. So forests are borderline, forests are close enough to us. I've, I've seen a dozen forest fire fighting startups in the last year. I would think that coral reefs are actually most often around poor countries. We might start losing all of them at 1.5 degrees C. That, that might become the point at which uh, bleaching events become so common that it's decline and decline and decline. Uh, we'll, we'll see, there's some papers, no models are totally perfect. Let's hope they're wrong. Uh, but that's an area where I think we need adaptation, not just for humans, but adaptation for natural ecosystems that we get services from, that we get purified water from, or we get fish that have grown up in squirrels feed 800 million people. And that's an area that I think uh, we have to acknowledge the capital stack is not just venture. There's government funding, there's philanthropic funding, there's venture funding, there's debt funding, there's prizes, there's foundations. Uh, so I think we'll see more happen on all of that because we have no choice. Mm-hmm. I concur. I think there's going to be um, uh, unlocking of sovereign um, investment in these areas of geopolitical priority uh, and of you know, true public interest where the, the benefit is diffuse um, and, and universal. Uh, where there's not necessarily a single point of you know, return of capital to a specific investor. Usually, especially in the technology worlds, I have a, a, a kind of an unusual perspective because I'm a biologist. And so I think in terms of evolutionary timescales. And so I have faith in humanity. We, we, we always solve our challenges, right? Whether it was, you know, cooking our food and inventing fire or staying warm, inventing fire or using furs to go into colder climates all the way through to, you know, it's easy to forget. We, we, we only invented agriculture 10,000 years ago, right? Like 10,000 years ago, if you go past that point, um, our ancestors were hunter gatherers, right? And so in 10,000 years, we've done all of this and we've only just begun, right? We, 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 we now have software, we have robotics, we have biotechnology, like we have all of these ways of saving humanity. I'm not a Malthusian. For those of you that are familiar with Malthus, he basically said, you know, the end is nigh for humanity because we're gonna hit some constraint and then we're gone. Um, 
And, and I, I don't I don't believe that. Like, I believe that we use technology to find solutions to our challenges. I, I actually with Mez, that one perspective around the commons, the problem with the commons in the wild spaces, that's actually why I called Wild Earth Wild Earth. You know, my vision for Wild Earth is to help rewild spaces by reducing our footprint on the planet. And so my vision was to start in pet food um, because it's it's so huge. I mean, it accounts in the US, it's 25 to 30% of the meat we consume goes to our pets. It's like a massive number. Sierra knows this. Thank you, Sierra. And Sierra was an investor and a backer of Wild Earth in the early days. Um, and so, you know, the vision is if we help other entrepreneurs, I think we can start to find ways of these, you know, tragedy of the commons issues, especially around our wild spaces. And so, you know, David Attenborough is, is I'm a big fan of, of, of his work and, and Jane Goodall, you know, how do we help naturalists like that preserve these wild spaces, right? And that's something that I think that all of us play a role in, whether it's governments or, or private individuals and entrepreneurs, um, we have to find a way. All right, I want to get to a rapid fire section before we then kind of wrap things up with final question. So this rapid fire is going to be a game of underrated or overrated. I'm going to state some concepts and you just say if you believe it's underrated or overrated. Chances are everyone's going to agree, but if you have a hot take, I would love to hear it. Um, and so no wrong answers, though I might ask for your rationale. Um, and then I'll, let's just go in order. Let's go Sierra, Mez, and then Ryan, okay? Okay, so one example would be like measuring personal carbon footprint. I might say it's overrated because we actually need system level change, not individual level change. But you might say it's underrated because change starts with the individual. All right, so there can be various viewpoints here. Home electrification. So mass- Well, do you think it's underrated or overrated? Just- yeah, I think it's underrated um, okay. for the reasons of the health benefits to internal or uh, um, interior air quality, not yet playing into the overall calculus as it should. Uh, getting rid of fossil fueled combustion engines inside your house, like <laughs> you should do that for your own um, lungs. <laughs> great. Mez? Underrated. Focus on building heat. Uh, don't try to attach it to people's stoves. Sarah's totally right that gas stoves are unhealthy. People are emotionally wedded to them. If they're not emotionally wedded to whether their space heater is gas or electric. So I'd say focus on heat pumps first. Yeah. Ryan, quick thought on it. Uh, underrated, 100% underrated. I think electrification is gonna be huge. Great, all right, moving on. Next, next concept, let's start with Ryan on this one. Lab-grown food. I mean, I, I actually think it's underrated. I, I think that, you know, we've got a lot of FUD at the moment. Um, and so I think that that's good for those of us that want to keep building. Um, but it, it's, it's inevitable, right? So in the next decade, our food system will be transformed. Sierra? Yeah, I concur on this. The, you know, the, the overall fragility of supply chains that was laid bare by COVID uh, and by ongoing geopolitical turbulence, it, it just it speaks so precisely to robust production mechanisms that are not inefficient for reducing the overall resource draw for protein production. Completely underrated. Uh, overrated for producing consumer products, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing there. There's some good stuff there, and I'm really glad we're trying it. And I hope a lot of wrong. Geoengineering, Mez, let's start with you. Massively underrated. The only chance we have, besides a really lucky roll of the dice, to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius is sunlight reflection. Mm-hmm. We spent this year with about a trillion dollars on deploying uh, solar panels, wind, and electric vehicles and batteries. The total annual budget for R&D for determining how solar 
geoengineering, solar radiation management, sunlight reflection. So putting a tiny fraction of sunlight back in the space. That total annual research budget is around $10 million. It is one one hundred thousandth of what we spent on deploying clean energy. I'm not saying we should do it, but it is absolutely criminal and it is the, the dumbest thing in climate that we're not doing some science to fully understand some of your function. Completely agree. Like this is the you know top investment uh, potential for just marginal use of dollars on benefit of future generations and humanity. I mean, <laughs> we got to understand the science. This like the potential for this to buy us time to actually decarbonize production systems. It could be massive. We just we need to know. I mean, it is completely underfunded. I I, I would say underrated, but I'm I'm going to do something a little bit different. Um, I believe we, we should genetically engineer our environment. And so I think we should make crops and plants like we have all this unused land, deserts. Why don't we turn those into rainforests, right? How do we engineer crops to grow in that? Um, the bleaching that Mez mentioned, well, it turns out you could actually genetically engineer uh, coral reefs to withstand increases in temperature. I know this is a bit of a controversial take, but I think we should use the tools of biotechnology to actually help support a more vibrant wild world, earth. Uh, wild earth, yeah, so you got to plug in there, but it was more vibrant wild spaces. Yeah, more vibrant wild spaces. It's, I love, uh, you know, biology, but I also love are the tools and the things that we can do to improve um, the biology that exists on this planet. Okay, the yeah. penultimate question, national energy independence basically for each state or country or country rather underrated or overrated i mean impossible <laughs> <laughs> very problematic concept it doesn't work yeah that, oh that's it doesn't work that's interesting okay so energy independence is not possible today doesn't work well so in renewables the, all the models say the bigger a grid you build, you want to build continent-sized grids to get the highest reliability at the lowest cost. And even for things like oil, it doesn't matter if the U.S. produces more oil than it consumes. It's international buyers can still bid on the same cargoes. So if the price of oil goes up somewhere else in the world, it goes up here too. So there is no such thing. Markets are interlinked. The only way to build resilience against things like fossil fuel price spikes or shortages is to need them less. Mm -hmm. So that's where I will say also, what's something that's totally underrated, energy efficiency. Loved energy efficiency for so long, completely overlooked. Energy efficiency, way of the future. Thank you, thank you, Sierra. All right, I, last. I just, I, Tommy, I just wanna do one plug. Fossil fuels are biology. So I'm doing a plug for biology, right? It is literally biology again. And so the, you know, we can use the tools of biotechnology to make better fuels as well. Interesting to open that up right at the end. Let's go on to the final question. Um, a lot of the public discourse and narrative about climate change focuses on doom and gloom. So I'd love to hear from you. What gives you hope and optimism about investing in climate or working in climate? Ryan, would you start us off? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, my evolutionary perspective, right? I, I come at it from a biologist and I look at us, the history of us. We're probably a species that is maybe 250,000 years old, right? Not that old, but human-esque type um, species have existed before us. We will find a way. Like, I'm, I'm an optimist in that perspective. Like, we have found a way. Like, how is it that, and not particularly interesting hominid, somehow became us right on this planet. And so um, I think it's it's technology. 
And I think we've, we are a tool using species and we're really, really good at making tools that solve our problems. And so I, I think this is an opportunity for us to invest and build new technologies that solve these problems. Thank you, Mez. Uh, being a crazy optimist and still being too pessimistic makes me more optimistic. In 2011, I wrote this article saying man, Moore's law of solar is gonna drop like this five times as fast as the International Energy Agency said. I was called crazy and I was wrong. Solar dropped in cost twice as fast as I thought. Three years ago, I thought steel was gonna be this enormous problem we weren't gonna tackle for a decade or two. And now green steel is booming. So it's gonna get worse before it gets better, but we have the tools, we have the technology and every year we have more willpower on this topic. Thank you, Sierra, bring us home. Yeah, of course. So we actually recently published a letter on this called Faster Every Day. Uh, you know, in recognition of, yeah, thanks. It was, it's an encapsulation of the sense of the, the truly grounded optimism we see uh, as the climate destabilizes, technology can meet the challenge and actually move us into a future of abundance. We have a choice. We have now more than ever the capital availability. We have the willpower. We have the talent. We have the foundational technologies. Uh, it's never been a better time to build in climate tech. And we have the possibility to create a truly abundant future. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I love the density of insights, the startup examples, and just the beautiful vision of the future. Thank you all.